Well, good morning, church. Great to worship the Lord with you this morning. And if you're a, a guest, um, I do hope that you will come to our church picnic today, uh, three o'clock onwards, Camp Tempucci. Just ask anybody on your way out where that is, if you don't know where it is. It's about 10 minutes, 15 minutes from here. And um, we would just love to have you. And I hope that I will get a chance personally to get to know you uh, at the picnic. So come on out. It's going to be a, a great time of, uh, of encouragement and fellowship together. Um, we have been going through the book of John as a church for the last few months, and what we're seeing as we move into chapter five is we're seeing two responses to Jesus, and, and that is belief versus unbelief, and John wants us to believe in Jesus. In fact, at the end of his book, Um, At the end of the gospel, he says in John chapter 20, verse 31, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, this morning, we're going to see what one writer called Jesus' conflict with unbelief. Back in, back in the very beginning of, of, of John's epistle, or not epistle, his gospel, he, he writes that, that um, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. But those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And so, as we've moved through, we've seen different characters. We've seen, we've seen some who have believed. We've seen Nicodemus, who, who kind of came with a, a, maybe a weak belief, an intrigue, wanting to know more, but, but not quite ready to, to publicly follow. And then, and then we saw the Samaritan woman who, who was a sinner, but, but when, she, when she met Jesus, she left her water pot, went back, and became an evangelist among the Samaritans, who were kind of the enemy of the Jews. They were kind of the, the half-breeds. They were the, the treasonous heretics. And they received him and believed him and followed him. That was back in chapter 4. And then, and then now we see in chapter 5, Jesus' engagement with the Jewish religious leaders and how they thoroughly disbelieved. And so in our text, in the context of unbelief from these Jewish religious leaders, Jesus claims equality with God. Now, before we dive into the text, I want you to stop and think about that. A man who says he is God. That's mind-blowing. If he didn't, if he, if he just, if he hadn't grown up knowing that Jesus is the Son of God, that's mind-blowing. A human being who's truly human, truly being God. <laughs> um, imagine that. Well, here we see Jesus revealing three things in this text. And, and the first is we see him revealing his power, his divine power in verses one through nine over sickness and disease and the results of a fallen world. So Jesus here reveals his power. So let's look back into verse one. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, if you've been reading from chapter four, you know that he was in Galilee, which is actually north of Jerusalem, and Pastor Bill mentioned this last week, but we need to remember that Jerusalem was where the temple was located. And so to the, 
to the Jews, that represented the location on earth of the presence of God. That the temple was, as it were, a portal between earth and heaven. And so it didn't matter where you were, if you're going to Jerusalem, and it was up on a hill, okay, um, but if you're going to Jerusalem, you were going up to Jerusalem because you were, in a sense, getting closer to the presence of God. Does that make sense? So we're going to always see that, that he went up to Jerusalem. Doesn't matter whether it's north, south, east, or west, he was going up to Jerusalem. And so here we see in verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, if you're reading in the ESV Bible, which is what we use, um, it's one great translation, there's a lot of great translations um, of the Bible, you may notice something, maybe, if you're reading here, and you get to verse 3, suddenly you see verse 5. And maybe you wonder, where is verse 4? What's going on here? It's missing in the ESV. Well, not really. Uh, If you go to the bottom of the page, if you have better eyes than I do, okay, uh, or maybe you got your reading glasses and you look down at the little subscript at the bottom of the page, you will see this. In the ESV it says, some manuscripts insert wholly or in part, quote, waiting for the moving of the water. That's what these invalids were doing, it says. Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So why isn't that in our actual text? Well, the reason is that uh, old translations like the King James Version, okay, which that's like 1611, right? Over 400 years ago when that was translated. Um, Older translations include verse 4, right? But most modern translations like the New American Standard Version or the NIV, the New International Version, or the ESV, which we have in in the Pew, uh, English Standard Version, um, they do not have that verse. And the reason is that many manuscripts of the Bible, uh, some of them Uh, In full, some of them are are like pieces of pottery, but thousands and thousands of manuscripts have been discovered in the last 400 years since the King James Version was translated, and the oldest, most reliable manuscripts don't include verse 4. Okay, so, you you know, maybe you're wondering why I'm geeking out on this. Um, You know, this is, there's a whole science called textual criticism, and it's, it's looking at all of the different manuscripts of the Bible, because we don't have the original autographs, the very first manuscripts, and that's probably by design from the Lord so that we wouldn't worship them, okay? Uh, wouldn't make a shrine or something and, and you know, uh, worship them. But we have tens of thousands of, of manuscripts, and some of them are very, very old, and the oldest, most reliable ones don't include verse four. And, and so, um, when you think about verse four, um, should that be in there? Should that not be? I'm not going to be dogmatic, but I, I'll, I'll say when you think about the implications of that verse, they're not really consistent with Old Testament miracles of healing, right? Think about that. Um, 
an angel coming down and stirring the water so that the first person in a stampede could get healing. That's not exactly the way God did miracles of healing in the Old Testament. Uh, It was about mercy and grace. Moreover, the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and New Testament was a time in which God had been absent in His revelation and in His, 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 His acts of power until the Messiah was born, and suddenly you had an explosion of miracles, even with the birth of Christ. You know, the, the, the annunciation of angels coming down, talking to shepherds, um, uh, the star leading the, the magi, the, 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 the wise men, right? Um, all of the things that happened, uh, you know, the, the actual incarnation of Jesus, uh, an incredible miracle, and suddenly in the life of Jesus, an explosion of miracles. So it just seems a little odd, to be honest with you. And, and so, because of the, the, the science of manuscript evidence, looking that a lot of scholars today, most scholars today, think it's likely that verse 4 is actually a note uh, in the margin of, a, of, of someone's manuscript at some point that kind of worked its way in. Um, but it's likely that what we have here was a spring-fed pool, so people actually saw kind of the, the, the bubbling up of a spring from time to time, and it's likely that many in Jesus' day did believe this story. Okay, they're obsessed. The Jews at, the, at this time were obsessed with angels, um, and, and so there's a, a likelihood that people believed this story, and certainly this invalid did. This would explain why he was there and why he told Jesus that there was nobody there uh, to help him into the pool. And so in verse 5 we read, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Well, you can imagine what this guy's thinking here. Do, do I want to be healed? Are you kidding me? Uh, I've been laying here for years. And, and so the sick man answered him uh, in verse 7, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Now, now, a point I want to make that I think is really important and is relevant uh, to the life of the church today, and that is this. This certainly was not what people call a faith healing, right? It was not a faith healing. And when I say that, there have been a number of, of, of so-called healers in the church over the last number of decades. I think of Robert Tilton, um, Benny Hinn. Uh, these healers have a big service, they'll psych a lot of people up, uh, uh, try to get people, you know, to come forward, and if they have enough faith, they can be healed. I mean, I remember watching, when I was in high school, Robert Tilton putting his hand on the screen and saying, if you put your hand on the screen, you know, and send me a $100 check, you can be healed through the power of God, right? And, 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 but it was all dependent on you and your level of faith, and if you had enough faith, you could be healed. But this, this is not that. This man was miraculously healed by Jesus, but he did not recognize or know Jesus. He did not believe that Jesus could heal him. All he wanted to do was get into the water ahead of everybody else so that he could be healed. D.A. Carson wrote that verse 7 reads, quote, less as an apt and subtle response to Jesus' question than as the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he's answering a stupid question. 
So this guy is not like the model of faith. But Jesus healed him anyway. This is all about his power and his grace. And so in verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And it wasn't like the man thought about it for a while and decided, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust him. It says, at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And I'm going to bet he did some leaping and, and, and singing for joy, as another lame man we read about in the book of Acts did. But what we see here is Jesus revealing his divine power over creation with this miracle, okay? This wasn't some kind of psychosomatic, quote, miracle where, where you kind of sit there and you kind of wonder, what, was the guy really healed or not, right? It, it wasn't a question. It wasn't like the guy had to go to PT the next week, all right? Um, where, where, where someone gets out of the wheelchair in faith, but the next day, you know, you go visit them at the house and they're back in the chair. That's not what happened here. This was a genuine, undeniable miracle, and I'm going to call it a miracle of recreation. All right? And the reason I say that, um, uh, if you have been lame for 38 years, okay, your legs don't look like, they don't look normal, all right? I don't know if you've ever known someone who is a victim of polio. Thankfully, we wiped that out in our country decades ago. Um, but you go to places, you go to Africa, you go to Central Asia, you see plenty of polio victims. I had a friend in Mozambique uh, named Gabriela, and he, his, his, he, he, was a, he was born, he had polio when he was a young child, and so he, his legs were paralyzed, and because he couldn't walk on them, they had just shriveled up to sticks. And Gabriela was like many other Mozambicans back in the day. Um, you know, a poor fellow lived in a mud hut, didn't have a wheelchair. Uh, wheelchairs didn't really, there really weren't wheelchairs over there, and they really wouldn't have worked very well unless they were like all-terrain wheelchairs or something. And, and so Gabriella, though, had these amazing huge shoulders, and he could kind of walk with his hands. He could actually run with his hands, but he would drag his legs like sticks behind him. And we, we got him a pair of crutches. He learned to use those things. He could run on his crutches, you know, huge shoulders. But his legs were like sticks, and that's what this man would be like, okay? And so, so what happened here, when the Lord healed him, Jesus caused his muscles to instantly grow and his nerves to be regenerated. And so Jesus was recreating his legs as they were intended to work before the fall, before his fall, whatever happened in his life, it had caused him to be lame. And Jesus not only recreated his legs, but Jesus even gave this man the will to be healed. He said, get up, take up your bed and walk. And the man did it. So here's the question. Should we pray for healing like this today? Well, maybe you're a little bit hesitant when you meet someone um, who has a significant medical need. Maybe you're, you're hesitant just a little bit to pray for healing because what if God doesn't answer that prayer with a yes? Is that person going to be more disappointed? Are they, are they going to, is their faith going to be hurt by it? And I think when we consider this question, we need to remember that all healing that we experience in our lives comes from the Lord. 
And that's from the scrape on your arm healing to a healing from cancer. Even surgery. You, you may think, well, no, that's, you know, I, I know what, that, what happens there. You know, you go to the hospital and there's a team and an anesthesiologist put me down, thankfully, and we have a, uh, you know, a skilled surgeon with his, his scalpel or his laser, his, his machinery who cuts that tumor out or uh, fixes the bone. Um, uh, that's, that's just, you know, there's a natural explanation for that. Well, think about that. Even the surgery that we have, the, the modern medicine that we have, is a gift from God. He's revealed that to us over time through His natural revelation. We didn't just create all that. We, we discovered it uh, as we learned how the body heals. And we, we, we designed things from His natural creation. We didn't create anything that He hadn't already, that didn't already exist. We just learned to work with His creation and, and set things up such that the body heals. So we need to remember as we pray for people going through surgeries or medical care that Jesus is indeed the great physician and all glory should always go to Him. We need to also remember that God is constantly healing, but it is not always His will to heal us. And, 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 and this is where we need to be careful because there is some bad theology out there that teaches people that it is always Jesus' will to, to heal. I mean, He never wants anyone to suffer, okay? And so, if you don't experience His healing, it's your fault for not believing strong enough that, that He can heal you. You should just learn to believe hard enough. But, but you know what? That's not what we see happen in this miracle. This wasn't a believing man. It was simply Jesus' power and His grace. And, and contra to the concept that, well, Jesus, of course, always wants to heal everybody, well, remember the Apostle Paul, who asked the Lord three times to heal his thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, but it was something that caused him great anguish and pain. And God said, no, I'm using this pain for your greater spiritual good. Second Corinthians chapter 12 Verse 7 is where Paul writes about that. He says, so to keep me from being conceited because of the great, the, the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had been given, a thorn was given me in the flesh, and it was bad. He says, he calls it a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me, but it was there to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. That it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So we need to remember that it is not always God's will to say yes. Sometimes he says no to prayers of healing. And again, we need to understand for, for those who are, the, you know, for the kind of the faith healer community um, uh, who, who believe that God always wants to heal, that really is an opposition to the hope and the promise we have of eternal life in heaven. For, we're design, for, for the, the plan right now in a fallen world is for all of us one day to succumb to some kind of disease and die so that we might live forever. Uh, so our, you, you could say that it is true it's His will to heal all Christians because He does that. Uh, that moment that you cross from Death into life, eternal life, that is the ultimate healing. When, and when the final trumpet blows, when Christ returns, when, when the dead in Christ are resurrected to new bodies, 
that are, are, are after the, the pattern of the resurrected Christ, that is the ultimate healing we long for, okay? So should we pray for healing today? My answer is absolutely. Absolutely let's pray for healing, but let's do it with a spirit of, of humble, submissive, God-dependent faith. With a, with a not my will but yours be done attitude. The, the attitude of Jesus. And when he does heal, whether it be miraculously or whether it be through a, a period of, of therapy uh, or, or medication, let's be sure to always give him glory and thanksgiving when he does heal us. Maybe, maybe he, he uses medicine but like I said, where, where, where did we get that medicine? We got it through his natural revelation to us. And it's all from him. So let's give him glory every time we receive healing. Well, what about, what about miraculous healing? You know, there are some who, who think that, that God doesn't do that anymore uh, today. And I just challenge them. Where do you see that in the Bible, that God no longer heals Today, God, it, we're not, this isn't Christian deism where he's far away. Um, now, I have to on, I honestly tell you, my batting average for um, miraculous healing prayers is not super high, okay, in terms of the yeses. It's not super high, but I believe that we're called in faith to pray for, for healing. And I, I remember a time back in Afghanistan where we had a, a man who had worked for us in the past. Um, the, the kids all called him Kaka or uncle. Uh, he had a, you know, he was an older guy with a flowing beard, but this guy was strong as an ox, you know, big barrel chest. Uh, he looked just like Santa Claus, all right? Hey, we have a picture of, of Grace as a little one uh, in his lap, and he's got a Santa hat on, you know. Um, Afghan Santa Claus. Well, well, I got word one day about a year after he had um, ceased working with us um, that, that he had suffered a stroke. Actually, let me back up a little bit. I, I had actually, um, it, I, I had been over to his home, and, uh, and the next day I got word that he had suffered a stroke. So I go over there, and, and it was bad, and the medical care in Afghanistan, the local medical care, was not great. Um, and I remember feeling the Holy Spirit convict me, you need to pray for him, for healing, in front of his Islamic family. And I, I, in the flesh, did not want to do it because I was afraid. I mean, it wasn't the sort of thing where he might just get better. I mean, he couldn't talk. He was just kind of sitting in a corner, uh, laying in a corner. He couldn't stand up. Um, half of his body was paralyzed. And I, and I remember thinking, <laughs> that, you know, I don't know that he's going to be in this world much longer. And so I, I prayed for God to reveal his power in the name of Christ to this family by healing him. And they actually thanked me. They weren't upset that I prayed in the name of Jesus. Uh, he didn't look any different when I, when I left. But then I got word the next week that God had indeed healing, healed him. And he was up riding a bike, like not just partially healed, but he was, God had healed him. And we just had to give God glory. And I tell you what, that family was suddenly far more open to the gospel than they had been before. So maybe you're sitting here today, and maybe you're in pain. Maybe you've been in pain for a while, and for some time you've been asking him to heal you. I just want to say to you, and I want to remind you, that he loves you. 
And, and as I mentioned earlier, one day you will be healed. This pain is not going to last for eternity. One day you will be healed. But I also want to remind you of the story of the persistent widow. Keep praying in submissive, dependent faith. Well, in this story, we, we see Jesus reveal his divine power through healing, but we also see him revealing his authority. That's our second point this morning. Jesus reveals his authority over religious traditions. And so we're going to look at verses 9 through 16. Verse 9, the second part of verse 9 reads, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, this really could be a sermon, that last verse, uh, and let's just say it'll be a sermon for another day. We know by comparing Scripture to Scripture that not every malady, not every... um, uh, impairment that people suffer is a direct result of their sin, okay? Uh, in fact, often it is not, but it is always a direct result of sin, right? We live in a cursed, broken world because of humanity's sin against God. But sometimes the things that we suffer are a result of sin, okay? Um, you commit sexual immorality, and you get a sexually transmitted disease, that is a result of sin. Uh, and we should pray for healing for that. And you should seek medical care for that. So sometimes we do suffer physical results from sin. And in this man's case, evidently, it seems that was the case. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, I have a question for you Bible scholars in the room, okay? Um, Where in the Old Testament does God prohibit picking up your sleeping kit and carrying it with you on the Sabbath? Anybody know? Anybody got a verse for me? You get a prize. If you get it, I got people looking at me kind of like, I don't know. Well, you know what? The answer is nowhere. Nowhere does it say that. You can't carry your your sleeping bag on Sunday, right? Um, Let's go back to the beginning of the Sabbath. In Exodus chapter 20, so this is actually in the Ten Commandments, we read verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth to see and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, so here in Exodus chapter 20, 
we see God clearly instructing his people to rest from their vocational work on the Sabbath day for two reasons, really. So, that, so they could recover and, and rest. And, that, and this goes back to creation even, what God did, the pattern he gave. So this is something that humanity needs and so they could stop and focus on God himself and, and worship him and have a spiritual rest. And so Jesus explained later in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And God clearly never prohibited acts of mercy on the Sabbath. Of course He didn't. Mercy reflects His character, who He is. And in another place, Jesus had rebuked the Pharisees for their hypocritical criticism of His healing on the Sabbath. In Luke 14, verse 5, he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? So God's law was intended to help people know him and to flourish on the earth, not, not to crimp their style. But the problem was that these Pharisees invented all kinds of extra rules to help, keep, to help people keep from violating God's law. And so they had done, I mean, there's crazy stuff. They had determined how many feet you could walk on the Sabbath without breaking the Sabbath, and how many ounces you could carry, right? Then they had come up with a whole bunch of other rules that you could use to get around those measures. And so the, the end result was their version of the law was oppressive. Now Jesus here shows us that he had authority over the law. I mean, frankly, he could have said, um, hey, I gave that to you. I can do whatever I want, right? I, I, I made it, I can break it, right? I mean, he gave the law at Sinai. And, and the law itself was supposed to point to, and I would argue it was fulfilled in him. But the bottom line here is that human beings don't like authority over them. And so what's ironic here is that even when Jesus had already de demonstrated his divine authority through his healing power, the, the Jewish leaders rejected him as their Messiah, and the truth is they were using their religion and their structure of the law for their own personal power. And they used their interpretations of the law to, to justify persecuting their own Messiah. You might think, well, what does that have to do with me? You know, I don't do that. Well, Pastor Mark, uh, Matt Carter warns us, quote, the love of rules traditions and possessions more than, than, more than people can creep into our lives in subtle and dangerous ways. Is that true? Can, can you think of ways that, that maybe things that aren't actually biblical, but maybe it's part of our own culture or church tradition could come in and, and create a critical heart, contra to dependence and submission to the Lord? Pastor Matt Carter goes on, he says, our hearts are a battlefield. Two opposing forces clash violently every day. Our desire for autonomous self-rule engages in a fierce battle with an appropriate desire to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So even we Christians have a battle going on. And so let's be careful to never allow our religious traditions or a desire for our own autonomy to get in the way of our bowing before King Jesus. So Jesus reveals his power and his authority 
But also here in his response, we see him reveal his identity. In verses 17 to 18, Jesus reveals his identity. That's our final point this morning, which is he is equal with God. In this situation, right, them accusing Jesus of of violating the Sabbath by encouraging a man to pick up his mat, um, by actually healing on the Sabbath, Jesus could have pointed out several things. He could have pointed out their misunderstanding of the Sabbath rule. He could have defended himself and said, you're wrong, you dummies with your dumb rules. I never broke the Sabbath as it's written in the Torah. He could have said that. Or he could have pointed out their hypocrisy as he did in other places. He could have said, I I just healed a lame man without breaking a sweat. But you grunted and groaned this morning when you were pulling your ox out of that ditch. Right? You hypocrite. Or he could have just pointed out their, their lack of mercy. You know, I just healed an image bearer who had been suffering for 38 years. And you're mad because I broke your traditions. But he did none of that. Instead, what he did was he totally threw gasoline on their fire. He poured salt in their wound. He stuck it to them totally in their eye. That's what he did. Look at verse 17. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. You may wonder, well, how is that in their eye? Well, let me tell you. Here's what he was saying. He was saying, what do you think God is doing today on the Sabbath? He's working. He's maintaining the atomic structure of the universe, which unlike what deists think, doesn't just spin according to natural law by itself. He's the one holding it all together. He's giving life every day to creatures in the world. He's giving you every breath you have. And you know what? God is healing sickness all the time, even on the Sabbath. One, one writer put it this way, if a man cuts himself on the Sabbath, the healing process begins immediately, right? Doesn't just start on Monday or Sunday in their time. And, and you know what? The, the Jews understood this, okay? Um, they used to have debates about how God could indeed work maintaining the earth and the universe as they understood it on the Sabbath without violating the Sabbath. And they, you know, they'd say, they had too much time on their hands, in my opinion, and sat around and debated this kind of thing, right? But they believed that God actually was working on the Sabbath. And so Jesus here reminded them that God is doing the work of healing, and he says, and so I am working too, restoring, healing, recreating muscle and, and nerve structure in this man. And so the Jews understood him exactly. That's why verse 18 says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We need to remember, and we we see here, that, that Jesus is a different person than God the Father. And this is, this is the, the, the mystery that we behold that's revealed to us in the Bible of the divine trinity, okay? Uh, and that is that, that Jesus and God are not the same person. They each have their own personalities. Jesus Christ, God the Father, and I shouldn't say Jesus and God. It, Jesus is God the Son, right? But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit each are separate persons, that they each have their own 
personality, and yet they share a complete unity, a, a, a complete unity of essence. One God in three persons. And so they ontologically are equal in essence, fully God from eternity past, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent even. And so what we see here, and that would apply to Jesus until the incarnation when he chose to take on humanity. There he limited his omnipresence to being in one place at one time. But what we see here is that Jesus relates to God his Father as a son. And we're going to look more at that next week. But he is completely equal in essence. And there are all kinds of implications for us when we think about the Trinity, to our society, to to marriage. You can have two people with different roles, one that actually submits to the other, okay, who have economically different roles and yet have equal value and equal essence before God, right? Our society wants to say today that, that we're going to, and, and, and this is incredibly discriminating if you think about it, stop and think about it, but that, 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 that if, that, that in order for people to be equal, economically, hey, they have to be the same. They, 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 a man and a woman have got to have the, to be able to do the exact same things in order to be equal. Well, if you stop and think about that, what you're saying, therefore, is that, that a garbage man has less worth than a surgeon. It leads to all kinds of wickedness, right? What we see in the Trinity is that you can have three persons sharing beautiful unity with different jobs to do, different roles to play. We're going to look at that. We're going to talk about that a little more next week because Jesus talks about how he interacts with his father, how he submits to his father, and yet his father is, is glorified when his son is worshiped. It's going to be beautiful. It's beautiful, you know? It's kind of like how, maybe a, a, a shadow of that might be the, the joy you find, you know, when you see your, your, your child excel out there on the sports field, you know, uh, the, 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 that's how God relates with his son. Um, when every knee will one day bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of, of God, the Father. But he, as the son, made himself here equal with God. Well, let me ask you, as we, as we land the plane this morning, do you believe that Jesus is equal with God the Father? Do you believe that? Do you believe that they are both working today in history and, and, and behind the scenes? They are upholding the earth today. Do you believe that? Do, they, do you believe that they're working in your life today? How should that truth affect you and your life today? Well, let me... Let me go off topic a little bit for a moment here, although it's not really off topic. Um, This week, if if you've been following the news, um, there's been a lot of news stories uh, across multiple platforms about AI, artificial intelligence, okay? And I mean, I mean, doesn't matter what, there's just been a bunch of news articles about this, all right? And and some people have even uh, compared this to basically the Manhattan Project. Okay, when, at the, when they realized the power of the atom and what they had done after it was done, this is more like mid-course, people recognizing, whoa, uh, this could really be life-changing, okay, what's coming down the pike. 
And some folks are really excited about it. Like, look, we can use AI in medicine and in defense to, to you know, with far fewer people dying on the battlefield, at least on our side. Um, uh, and, and so, man, we got, you know, full steam ahead. We got to figure this thing out, um, you know, use it to make quicker, better decisions. Um, you know, this stuff can become quickly smarter than humans and it's uh, decision-making processes are over 100 times as fast as the way the human brain can work. Uh, man, let's, you know, we can, this stuff is greatest thing since sliced bread. It can even do my homework for me. Well, others have a different feeling. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. There are ethical considerations here. I just listened to a, a podcast yesterday by a group of pastors. It was a nine marks thing. Should we use AI in sermon prep? Some of them had actually like punched in some stuff and a, a better sermon popped out that AI came up with than they could, right? Uh, I, I decided very quickly that, I, uh, that you know, and f- you know, let me just um, kind of confess here, if you don't know me well, um, I am a Luddite, okay? That means I am a person who is very suspicious and fearful of technology, okay? Um, I promise to not use AI in sermons. Um, Elon Musk, who, pretty smart guy, there's some smart people out there who, who are saying, listen, um, the genie's out of the bottle because everybody is going to be racing to develop AI. Like, even if we as a nation said, okay, we'll take a, a six-month moratorium, Chinese are going to keep going. So, hey, we all got, you know, we all gotta, we're in this new race here. Um, he, he's saying, listen, this could destroy civilization, uh, even humanity. And of course, I mean, we all, you know, I mean, he, this guy and his companies have created some pretty cool things. I think I saw a Tesla pull into our parking lot today. Um, I'm a geek. I'm a Luddite, but I'm a, I, I really like uh, rockets. I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I'm cheering when rockets take off. I think that's really awesome. Um, but, you know, his end game here is he really wants to make humanity a multi-planetary species, and I'm not against that. I think God has given us a, a, a mandate to explore and discover, right? Um, I'm, I'm cool with a Mars colony, okay, if you can pull it off, but the reason he wants to do it is to save humanity, because he thinks humanity is going to destroy itself. Uh, and he's one of the guys saying, listen, AI is bad news. Now, what I can't figure out personally is um, how going to Mars and living there is going to make you safer from AI, um, where you need like machines to keep you alive. I'm, I'm thinking the smarter thing is to go to Afghanistan and, you know, live in a cave. I think they're, they'll make it better than anybody else. They're good at shooting down drones. Some of my wife is starting to look at me like, get back to the text, honey. Look, I think we ought to be wise on the front end of all this stuff, okay? Um, normally we're not. Normally we figure out what we can do and then a decade or two later figure out, should we do that? Should we have done that? What are the ethical implications? It's kind of how it goes. But here's what I would say to you biblically, how this applies. We don't need to give in to fear over this or anything else um, in your life that you may be worried about because Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I am working. What that means is God is in control. Now, that does not mean humans aren't going to do something really terrible uh, to each other, to civilization, or, um, uh, or that our society is always going to uh, be a pleasant place to live in, or, or that we'll always be here uh, as we know it in our nation. 
And believe me, I don't want anything bad to happen to our, I love our country and I love Niceville, right? I don't relish the idea of, you know, killer robots and drones going around trying to kill everybody or whatever, whatever AI might, might do, right? Um, you know, anyway, I won't even read, tell you some of the stuff I read this week. Um, if you Google how could AI kill people, you get some pretty interesting things. <laughs> or you could go ask ChatGPT about that, but uh, I've never even been on it, so... But Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I am working. And what that means is that God is in control. He is sovereign over the history of the earth. And he's actually told us in the Bible that Jesus has some great plans to rule over the earth with his people in glory one day. And so that is going to happen. And, and, and God so loved the world that he became one of us in Jesus, the Son, so that we might be cleansed from our sins and we might know him and we might have everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the end of history. And we know that because the Father is working and Jesus is working, if you're in Christ, that's what we will experience together. So if you're listening to all this and you don't really know Jesus or you're not sure that you know Jesus, I just want to call you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the relevance of it to everything that we experience in our lives. I thank you that you are a God who delights in healing. And Lord, I I do pray for healing uh, for us. I pray for healing for those in this room who are suffering pain and the effects of the fall. Lord, we know you are good. We know that you are sovereign. We know that you see everything. You see all the variables that we do not see. We know that you use our pain to help us be more dependent on you, to be more merciful to others. But Lord, I do ask you humbly for those who are in pain that you would give them healing. Lord, I thank you that on the authority of scripture, you promise us that one day we will live free of pain and that you yourself will wipe every tear from our eyes. We look forward to that day. I pray in the name of our Lord and Savior and Hero Jesus. Amen.